The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Keeper Cut Podcast. I'm Chad Young, and this is this is the point where I would usually say that I am joined as always by Pete Ball, but this week is not always. Pete is unfortunately not with us. He'll be back next week, but I do have a very, very good guest to replace Pete. He's like at least twice as valuable as Pete. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. I don't know if Pete's going to listen to this and be very upset with me now, but, <laughs> but I'm joined by Justin Vibber the creator of the Auto News Surplus Calculator, the host of the Autobot podcast that some of you may have heard me on in the past. And Justin, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. Are you ready to live up to being double Pete? Two Pete? Uh, n- no, I think you're overhyping me, but that's okay. I'll do my best. That's all I can do. All right. Well, we'll see. I think that might not be good <laughs> enough. No, we're, we're, I'm very excited <laughs> to have you here. And, and very disappointed not to have Pete here. I think Pete would enjoy this conversation too. But yeah, Justin, before we, we dive in, why don't you tell people where they can find you out in the digital universe? Sure. You can find me on Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but I tweet the things that I release. Um, I, at Justin Vibber, that's V as in Victor, I, B as in boy, B as in boy, E-R. I also have a Patreon where I release... The auto new surplus calculator, as you mentioned, Chad, it's patreon.com slash vibot, which is sort of my little, my little handle on auto new Slack and, and the interwebs related to auto new. So yeah, that's primarily it. I, like I said, I don't tweet a ton, but I do always update my Twitter account whenever I release a new tool or a new project that I'm working on, uh, on Twitter. So, you know, auto new Slack <laughs> for anyone that's not yeah. already on it. Uh, I'm usually there every day whether I want to be or not. Sometimes I get too wrapped up in the conversations in there, but yeah. It does happen. That does happen for <laughs> sure. So let's talk for, for the surplus calculator. I mean, not all of our not all of our listeners uh, are going to be familiar with it. Not all of them even play out or new. And, but I think it's a really interesting concept regardless of whether or not you play out or new. So let's start by talking about, like talk a little bit about why you made it, what it does. Yeah, I mean- Back in the day, before Autonew existed, I played in a CBS auction keeper league where it had escalating salaries. You could keep, I, I forget how many you could keep, but it was a certain number. It was like eight to 10. And then if you kept the player, you had to keep them for like $5 more than their prior year auction price or keeper price. So while I was playing in that league, I I had my own set of values, but I wanted to try to figure out, okay, should I keep this player? What's the best way for me to have a sense of how valuable this player is given that all this extra value is being capped and there's going to be inflation at the auction? And that was sort of the genesis of a rudimentary version of a surplus calculator where I figured out, okay, I know how valuable the players are based on my values, but I want to know in relation to every other team in the league, how valuable are my keepers? And that was sort of the the start of that process. And then once I joined Audenew, I was kind of doing that same process with Audenew, but it was very informal. It was just for myself. It wasn't, you know, automated like the auto, the Audenew surplus calculator is now. So I started working on a tool and I figured, you know, I, I use this for myself. Maybe other people would want to use it as well. 
So I released it. I don't remember how long ago that was, 2016, 2017, been around for a few years, a number of years. And then from there, it was just a matter of working with Niv. Niv was great about communicating with me and saying, hey, what could I do on the back end that would make this easier? I used to require everybody would have to paste in their own rosters and paste in the values from a different location. And now all that stuff just gets pulled in automatically. And a lot of that is to Niv's credit because he's like, well, I can export roster files through the website and you can just link to it and pull it into Google Sheets. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. So so yeah, so the, the point of the tool basically is primarily it's a keeper deadline sort of focused thing, but it's it's definitely relevant throughout the year as well. I'll load, I do rest of the season projections on the Patreon so you can load those to sort of see the strength of each team at that point in time going forward. So, and and I use it you know, I, there's, there's tabs in there to look at the free agents in your league, sort it by roster percentage. I mean, some of those things you can do on the auto new site, but since I'm in the surplus calculator all the time, anyway, I've kind of built in some things in there that I want to look at free agents. I want to look at, you know, other teams, rosters and things like that. So. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's, that's important for people to, to understand about it is the idea of the surplus calculator and where the, where the name comes from is that sort of what defines value in a fantasy sports setting, really in any setting where you're using limited resources to buy something, is how much more you get for what you spend than than what you spend, right? And so right. The, the concept of surplus, pretty straightforward, is if a player is worth X and you pay Y and X is greater than Y, then there's surplus there. And, and at the end of the day the way you win any league is by maximizing the production you get from your team. But the only way to maximize the production you get from your team is, is to be creating value above and beyond, you know, in auto new it's $400, but even in a draft league, right? Like in a, you know, a right. t- traditional snake draft, you have 25 picks in a fantasy baseball league. Those picks have some set value. And every time you can use a second round pick, to get a first round value or a fifth round pick to get a third round value or a 10th round pick to get a fifth round value like that creates surplus it's it's value on your team that you didn't pay full price for and so that's what yep. the surplus calculator is helping people to to measure and, and look at and i you know if, if you play auto new and you haven't joined justin's patreon to get access to the auto new surplus calculator you're making a mistake and you should correct that mistake if you don't play out a new though, it's worth thinking about that concept and, and, and especially like especially when keeper time comes around, right? Like you were saying, Justin, this is really a keeper tool. Right. Right. That was the genesis. And 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 you're right about the the concept of surplus and that how that ties into the tool, but the greater context isn't just I need surplus, it's creating context around how how does my surplus compare to everybody else's. Right. You know, I may look at my team and say, well, I've got $50 worth of surplus. That's pretty good. But if there's three other rosters in my league that have $100 in surplus, I that context is is really what the surplus calculator was created to do is to say, okay, I'm more like a fourth place team, even though I have really good keepers, because you're not playing in a vacuum, right? You're competing with yeah. 11 other managers, and it matters the shape and, and, and context of the, of the rest of the managers in the league. So... And that and that's relevant as well when we're having this trade deadline discussion, right? It's my team is a good team, but who am I competing against? Who else is going to be in the running here as we get to the end? And what can I do to have an effect on the rest of the way? Yeah, and that's I mean that, that's that's exactly right. And and you know in my my non auto new leagues, I create my own sort of mini surplus calculator where I pull my projections into a Google sheet and just say who are the best values. And I do that for for drafts. I do that for auctions. It's either dollar values or it's round value. And it, it's, I can't tell you how nice it is that I don't have to do that for auto new leagues because <laughs> you have created something that does it for me, but it's, but it's a crucial step and it's, and it is something I still use now. I just, at trade deadline time, and we'll talk about this in a moment, I think about surplus very, very differently. I'm curious if you do too, but before we get into that, the question we ask all of our guests is about leagues they play with that have unique or different rules. And you, however, 
You're a company man. You play auto new and only auto new for baseball. I know for other sports, you, 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 you bounce around a little bit, but for baseball, you're all auto new all, all the time. That doesn't mean though, that you don't play in leagues with some unique rules, right? Right. That's right. So <laughs> I think the first way, if, if Niv Shah is listening, he should turn <laughs> off the episode now. That's why I started to laugh a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about why, but I'm curious to hear what what you play with, what you like, what you like about it. Yeah, so for the first, I want to say, four or five years I played Autonew, it was all standard format, you know, vanilla rules, just Autonew as Autonew is meant to be played. What I was seeing, though, at certain points, back then I was starting to do the Autonew power rankings, so I was having a good sense of what the Autonew landscape looked like across all Autonew leagues. And what I was seeing and what I was experiencing was that there were a lot of leagues where one or two managers were were just dominating and there wasn't, you know, very much turnover. And I think, and Niv, I think would admit this as well, there's a certain level of the way the rules and Autonew is structured, that there's a certain level of parity that is intended to be there. And back then, when I before I started this league I'm going to talk about, I felt that maybe there wasn't enough parity. So I started a league called Brinksmanship, and I recruited some of the managers that were very active veteran managers at the time. And the idea was I wanted to create a couple mechanisms that I thought would increase parity and engagement. Because that was the other issue too, is you'd have two or three teams would dominate every year, and then the bottom teams would just check out, right? And they wouldn't they wouldn't be involved. So the two ways that we did that was we have we were a five MLIB at the at the start where we had an off roster, each team had could draft five minor league players that did not increase the $1 increase every year. They weren't subject to arbitration targeting. So we started with that, and we also had a system that is still exists. We, we sort of grandfathered the five MLIB, but the other part of it still exists, and it was a coupon system. So the idea was that not based on you didn't get more coupons for finishing first. It was sort of you got the most starting at like fourth or fifth place, And then if you were 12th, you wouldn't get any coupons. So it was sort of intended to say, okay, you don't, in a standard auto new league, there's no reason to finish sixth or 12th, right? Or seventh or 12th right now, right? There's no difference between the two. You don't get any benefit or or hindrance from finishing in either direction. But the idea of this coupon league was you'd get more coupons, the better you finished. So it would incentivize everybody to be as engaged as possible throughout the whole season, some teams are still looking to crawl from 10th place to 9th place because it could mean a couple extra dollars in coupons. And the way those coupons worked is effectively there's arbitration in Autonew where a certain amount of money is applied to your players to increase their salaries every offseason. The coupons were basically you get $8 to reduce those arbitration dollars. They could only go against arbitration dollars that were placed on your team. You couldn't just reduce anybody you wanted. But if somebody was hit with arbitration, you could basically offset that arbitration with coupons. I, I think in general, it had the desired effect. I think there is more parity in this league. Of course, the problem is by reducing arbitration, you're increasing the surplus value that's in the league, which then increases the inflation. And I think some of those inflationary effects counteract and actually make the parity not as, as, as good as I wanted it to be. So um, there's, there's, there's more complicated mechanisms behind it, but that was the intention. And that was, you know, at the time it was sort of a, these are the little homebrew rules we're going to add to this league and we're going to see how it goes. In general, I think it worked well. I'm much more on Niv's side than I'm willing to admit right now, but I'll say it. I don't play in any other leagues that really have any extra add-on rules and I'm not really interested in doing it right now. I played in the different MLILB leagues and I just, it's so much easier to manage and keep track of everything if you just play standard auto new rules. It works well enough. There's, in my opinion, there's really no reason to go above and beyond. Now, I think anybody that wants to go ahead, but personally, I prefer to just play in vanilla leagues now. So other than the one, that's the only one that I'm, I'm, I have right now that doesn't have just standard rules. Yeah. I play in a couple that have five MILB and, and, you know, for those who, who aren't familiar with that, it's literally a draft that happens after the auction prospects only, and those players are sort of stashed by the teams that draft them without having to count against their roster. I did play in that coupon. I think it's the same league that I was in for a year, two years. Yeah, yeah you and Nymph. And I honestly like I don't I don't like the coupons. I get it. I understand the intention of it. I love the idea of 
incentives to continue to compete, even if you're not going to win. And, you know, I've got in, in auto new league one, we do that by paying out the top four spots instead of just like the top two or three, um, in, and then across auto new. Now there's the, the auto new prestige league, which you have to finish top six to qualify. So it gives you a little incentive. I know Niv has been pushing hard to finish sixth in league one. For, for just that reason. So there, there are some good incentives out there. The coupon one is a, it's a super creative solution to teams tanking. And it, I do think it's had, like, there are still teams that tank in that league based on my experience there, but it's like the one or two teams that are like, look, I'm never even going to get to fifth to get a meaningful coupon. So I'm going to like, I'm going to go all in on this rebuild and that's okay. In a 12 team league, there's nothing wrong with having two teams that are just, completely tanking right because they're focused on the future they're tr- you know that's part of the parody right part of the way you have parody in a long-term league like this is having people who are rebuilding and thinking about the future but if you have nine teams that are tanking yep. then nobody actually is able to build effectively because it's such a friendly buyer's market that the sellers aren't they're just not getting anything. So. And, and you'd be and you'd be surprised. And some of the leagues that I looked at over the years, it really was that. It was three dominant teams well, yeah. and then nine teams that basically weren't paying attention because they didn't have a reason to, because there was no, you know, there was no chance they were going to compete. So yeah, I mean, and and it's it, it I think in general, like I said, playing standard auto new is the way to go. But Back then, something like OPL didn't exist, and and that does create additional incentives. and And as Niv is fond of saying, it creates trade offs. It's a decision of, like you said, teams can still rebuild in this league with coupons, but they now have a, a decision to make. It's not just a clear cut. Well, I might as well because there's no reason not to. There is a reason not to. You're foregoing the possibility of getting coupons, but maybe you decide that rebuilding trades are more valuable than the coupons would be. And it having those decision points makes the league more interesting, I think. And OPL has introduced that for Autonew as a whole, because now you have a reason to finish sixth or fifth versus, you know, you're in sixth place now, you're not going to win. So just tank and rebuild. But now maybe you don't want to do that because you want to qualify for OPL next year. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about trade deadline since we're starting to get into, you know, tanking and rebuilding and fun topics like that. One of the things you talked about using the surplus calculator for is looking at yourself in context to other teams, figuring out, you know, does, am I really a contender? Am I not a contender? Do you use it that way this time of year or is this time of year the contender, not a contender decision purely based on standings? The short answer is that it scales based on the time of year. So early in the year, I'm anchoring more of my decisions on the surplus calculator and the rest of season projections because those, you know, one month into the year, that's five months remaining. The actual performance for one month isn't as important as the five months that are, that are coming up at this point when we've got five weeks left of the season. Yeah. I'm probably anchored more towards what has the performance been year to date, but I am still looking at those rest of season projections on the surplus calculator. I want to know, am I projected rest of the way as a top one or two team, or am I more like fifth or sixth? That does play into the decisions that I make about making trades at this time of year. So, yeah. And so when you say that, you're saying you're not looking at this point. Well, let me tell you, let me, uh, let me say this differently. At this point in the season, I am not looking at surplus at all. And like as, as a concept, right? You, you know, if I go to the surplus calculator, one of the columns you have on there is projected team value. That is different from surplus and it's different from surplus because a team could have hundreds and hundreds of dollars in loans in auto new, right? That are non surplus players, negative surplus players, right? If I, if I get a, make a trade for a $90 Marcus Simeon and I get a loan, it looks really bad from a surplus perspective, but it's still a Marcus Simeon who's made my team better. And so at this point in the season, I I also, I do like to go look at projections to get a sense of like, am I going to have a strong finish or not? But I'm not, I don't care if I've got the most or the least surplus in the league right now, if I'm contending. Right. I agree. That- and, and yeah. And, w- and when I say I'm looking at the surplus calculator to determine that, 
I am not looking at surplus. I'm looking at the the total value of my team versus the total value of the other teams and that value based on rest of season projections. So, right. Yeah, exactly. Right now, I, you know, I should have clarified that better. And what I meant by that was more, how does each team project in terms of the value that's on their team going forward, not the surplus value. Now, if I'm a rebuilding team, I might be looking at who projects to maybe have some surplus to kind of get an idea of that. But from a perspective of I'm competing, I want to see the total value across the league. And that just gives me a general sense of what I think every team's strength would be over this final five weeks or so. You know, there's a lot of caveats to that, but just in general, at a high level view, that's what I'm looking at at this time of year. You know, I, and again, if, if I project at middle of the pack, it changes my thinking versus if I project as the first place team in terms of total value the rest of the way. So, so let me, let me, let's do a little live, live case study here. My, my business school background coming into play. I am in league 32 and I am currently, so if I go to go to the surplus calculator for league 32, it tells me I have far and away the most surplus in this league. $166 in surplus. Nobody else has more than 47. It also tells me I have fairly comfortably the third best team value. There's a team at $643. There's a team at $560. And there's me at $472. However, on the standings, I'm in fourth place. Now, this is a this is a prize league. So being top three matters. But I I have not been aggressively buying. And I'm curious to know, do you, you know, when you look at this, do you see like, should I be buying? Because the surplus calculator thinks my team is very strong, right? It thinks I've got the third best team. That would be good enough to finish third. But right now, like I said, I'm in fourth. I have the third best points per game. I have the fourth best points per inning pitched. But there are teams ahead of me. Like the teams ahead of me are ahead of me in both. Right. So it's, you know, if you have the third best hitting and the fourth best pitching and everyone else is sort of scattered, you're going to be in a good spot. But if you have the third best hitting and third best pitching and there's someone else who has the best hitting and the second best pitching and someone else who has the second best hitting and the best pitching, that makes it a lot harder. It does. Okay. At a glance, as I look at this, yeah, I see that you have as you said, the third best team value right now, far and away the best surplus. I, there's two ways that I would play this. First of all, you're in fourth, but you're, you are 50 and about 70 innings behind first and second place, respectively. At your five-plus points per innings pitched, you're talking about between 250 and 350 points that you basically have in hand. So you are closer to that second place team than it looks like if you just look at the standings. So I think you're, you're still a couple points behind probably third place based on just, just year to date. And given that you're third in team value on the surplus calculator. Yeah. You're, you're probably not going to finish first, no matter what you do yeah, I think that's as fair. far as trading. But I think if it, if you wanted to finish third, you could definitely make some trades to push up into third or maybe even creep into second place. For me, I think you have enough surplus that you have, again, you have two choices. I think you could leverage some of that surplus to, to get yourself into the prize pool this year. No doubt about it. Or you double down on the surplus that you've accumulated and you are very much in shape to have one of those monster teams next year for this league. Just looking at it, you know, if you traded a couple of the players that don't have surplus, maybe not necessarily keepers, if you could set yourself up to be the runaway favorite next year, that's probably where I would lean because you do have that strong foundation and you could just double down on that and really put yourself in a great position next year. But if the prize is important to you too, I think you could absolutely trade a couple of your, you know, prospects or surplus assets and make a push into the second or third place position. But it looks like for, first is, is kind of a foregone conclusion at this point, but, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I've been, I've been sort of making some, some background deals, stuff, just moving pieces around, thinking about the future a little bit. I haven't, I have not sold by any means, but I haven't been buying either, but 
maybe I will try to make a little a little push here. I think I I think I underrated those bonus innings that I've got available to me, especially because this is a league where I have a thirty dollar Degrom who I've been sitting on all year long, and yeah. so that that you know over five points per game is is an under value of what my rotation should do the rest of the way. Right. The way he's pitching. I mean, he can give you like a half point bonus just by himself going forward. I mean, it's insane. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I would think about within the context of, of this specific example. Got it. So now as you're making trades and let's focus first on, on buying because I think selling, well, let's talk selling first. If you're selling, are you just looking for surplus? Is that just, I will trade uh, my best players for the best surplus I can get? No, no. I think, I think five or six years ago, that that thinking was probably more in line with what I thought. And I think it's somewhat naive to focus on surplus alone. I think the important thing at this stage in my auto new career <laughs> that I want to think about is I want to think about inflation and how that affects surplus and keepers. For example, in Brinksmanship, I mentioned that has high inflation because of those ARB coupons. Well, what that means is I'm more likely to keep a player who I have as a $50 salary and he's only worth $45 per my values. I'm much more likely to keep him in a league like Brinksmanship than I am in a league that's a second year league where there may not be any inflation at all. And because that inflation matters, because the the availability of players like that player are very non-existent in a league like Brinksmanship at that price. If I throw a $50 player in back into the pool in Brinksmanship, he's going to go for $70 because there's close to 40% inflation in that league most years. So no, I'm not just looking at raw surplus. I'm looking at sort of inflation adjusted surplus. Okay. So what that but could it, mean is I, I could I could trade for a player who, you know, like a Juan Soto, for example. I'm right. not necessarily out on Juan Soto if I'm rebuilding, if it if I think that he has inflation adjusted surplus, and if for some reason a contender is actually going to try to trade him away, which is unlikely. But no, I'm not strictly looking at surplus. I'm more trying to look at future value in the terms of uh, inflation adjusted surplus. So so are you looking at anything else? I mean, like if, if we assume like are, how much do you guys look at like team construction or how players fit together in a roster or things I, like that? Yeah, that's definitely a big factor. And it matters because if, if I'm, you know, if I'm trying to compete, let's say I'm in second place, I'm making a push for first and I'm chasing down a trade. If I have a strong rotation, yeah, Jacob deGrom is amazing, but he does, he he's not going to help me as much as he would if I had a glaring weakness in my rotation. So it does matter. It would change the targets that I'm going after for sure. You is know, I mean even if you're if you're selling, I mean I get if you're, if you're contending, I'm I'm that makes that makes sorry, That's what I meant. Right? Yeah, yeah, if I'm trying to if I'm if I'm contending and I'm trying to buy, that context matters more. If I'm selling, no. I'm just trying to get value and I don't care if it means especially because you have an off season, right? Yeah. If if I accumulate a lot of future assets now and they all happen to be pitchers or they all happen to be shortstops, I have another opportunity to sort of move off of that excess and rebalance my team a little bit in the offseason. In terms of trying to buy for now, you know, you're trying to focus on winning and and the shape of your team right now is what matters and not something you can correct in the offseason. So, you know, I'm an analytical person and some of those things are hard to quantify for me. So it's a more difficult answer for me to give. Yeah, it does matter. I don't know how much it matters in comparison to just going out and getting the best values you can get at trades, you know, and but you do have to consider that. You have to consider and especially like if you're running ahead of the innings pace, that's all the more reason why you shouldn't be going out and acquiring pitchers because if anything you should mm-hmm. be reining back the pitching that you're throwing out there. You should be restricting it just to your top, you know, maybe four starters instead of top 7 or whatever. You know, all of that context matters. One of the things I wanted to talk about in this episode is also a lot of this changes if you're in a head-to-head league. If you're in a head-to-head league and you're trying to get into the playoffs, because I think they're just approaching playoff time right now, right around, it's kind of right around the trade deadline is right around when playoffs begin for head-to-head. I would be prioritizing hitting depth. Hitting depth matters a lot in head-to-head because you don't have positional caps 
week to week or for the season. Well, week to week in the sense, you can only start one in your lineup every day, but there's no weekly. So I would be making sure that I can fill my lineups every day as much as possible on the starting pitching side, depending on how many games started a week you have in your head to head league, because that's there's variables there. You would prioritize acquiring as much pitching as you can so that you have the best quality and you're filling out all of those games every single week. Some of those things aren't as important in a Fangraphs points league. You're really just looking at, you know, how do I increase my points per game and my points per inning pitched? But in head to head, you really just need that bulk. So if I'm trying to compete in a head to head league, I'm trading every single prospect I have to get as much hitting depth and as much starting pitching depth. I'm not really paying attention to relievers. You can function with just any sort of bulk reliever or, you know, I'm, it's almost an afterthought in a head-to-head league, reliever, relief pitching is. But I'd be focusing. Why do you think relief pitching is an afterthought? Well, okay. So here's here's an interesting observation, okay? My opinion is that OPL strategy is quite highly aligned with general auto new head-to-head league strategy. And you may notice that there's, what, three teams? Out of the final eight that are co-managed by the same three managers who also happen to be first and second place, two of them last year. And if you look at their rosters, they have basically completely foregone any relief pitchers on their teams because it's just so much more important to be able to fill, in this case, a best ball lineup with hitters every single day and maximizing your starting pitching for the two slots a day that you have for OPL. So to me, that's that's the best evidence I can give that relief pitching in head-to-head leagues is just not that important. You can find a bulk reliever who can give you functional points equivalent to maybe not Edwin Diaz, but certainly you know the middle tier of relief pitcher in a standard Fangraphs points league, you can just sort of find. I mean, it's already easy to find relief pitchers in, in fantasy baseball in non-five-by-five when you don't care so much about saves specifically all the more easy to do it in head-to-head. And I just don't care about relief pitching in head-to-head. So I wouldn't be focusing on acquiring them or even considering it if I'm making contending deals. This is interesting. So I need to take a quick break. When we get back, I do want to talk more about this head-to-head concept. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show all right, welcome back. So, yeah, we were talking before we went to break about head-to-head and, and specifically about reliever strategy in auto new points head-to-head leagues. And, and this is interesting because you're, you're comparing it to OPL and, and the best ball format. And I, I'm wondering, you know, best ball, part of the reason you need so much hitting depth, and I agree with that, by the way. I carried three, four relievers on my OPL teams this year. Part of the reason you need so much hitting depth, though, is you... You don't know who's going to get, you know, a couple singles today, who's going to hit a home run today. In an actual head-to-head league, though, you have to guess. And so I, I think that, like, to me, the major difference here is, like, in OPL, if you have 10 outfielders and they're all fine, there's no Juan Soto's there, but there's nobody you need to cut either. Everybody is just a solid middle-of-the-pack outfielder. There's a decent chance that a handful of them are going to, you know, get some hits or do some damage on any given day. And that's and you and you adding another an 11th outfielder, a 12th outfielder can increase the likelihood that you fill all five outfield spots in best ball. In a standard head to head, though, where you're picking your lineup, I don't know that I agree that that much depth helps that much because on a day-to-day basis, I still have to pick somebody. 
And yes, there are going to be days where, you know, I have five outfielders who I would regularly choose who just, they're all lefties facing lefties or they're all to have really tough matchups or, you know, a couple of them are Rockies and they're on the road and I don't want them or something like that. Like that, I get that. But in general, if I've got, let's say, nine outfielders, I have a ranking in my head of all else being equal, who would I start? And 75% of the time, I'm going to start those guys anyways. And the fact, so adding a 10th or an 11th or a 12th outfielder who isn't at that same level instead of a reliever doesn't, doesn't help because they're going to be on my bench. I agree with almost everything you just said. <laughs> I do agree. Okay. And it certainly matters a lot more in OPL. Yeah. I still think it matters in head to head. And because yes, you're right. You're still choosing. These are the five that I I'm going to start, but there are so many times when you only have five that even could start in a given day. And one of them is scratched. Now you're only starting four outfielders. If you had an extra out, I mean, yeah, there, there are definitely, there's a point of diminishing returns for sure. Uh, much more than there would be for OPL, but I still would be looking to make sure that I have a reasonable number that is higher, right? That number is higher than it would be for a standard league. How many outfielders do I really think I need to to be able to start five almost every day? Yeah, because it like in head to head, if you have two more outfielders than every one of your opponents, I don't I don't know exactly how to quantify that. I, I haven't looked at wh- exactly what that difference would be, but I imagine it's some number of points per game difference you're gaining an advantage in just from having two additional outfielders, even if they're not that great, even if they're four point per game outfielders. If you get two more starts a week than your opponents, that's eight points. And, you know, maybe that's worth a tenth of a point per game the rest of the season just because you have the extra hitters on your team and can more often fill out your lineup. Uh, You're exactly right. In best ball, it's a lot more important because you're not just looking to fill fill a a lineup. You're looking to fill it with positive points. And what maybe half the half the time your players aren't going to have a positive point night. So. It it matters a lot. You might need 14 outfielders to ensure that most days you have five in your lineup that are getting you positive points for OPL. So, yeah, I mean, you those are all excellent points, and I agree. I still think I would be trying to get as much hitting depth. At a certain point, you can stop. <laughs> you don't need six yeah. catchers, especially because at some point the opportunity cost doesn't make it make sense because you're giving up that roster spot in lieu of something else. Um, mm-hmm. But I think... I still think that most head-to-head managers are undervaluing how important it is to have hitting depth in head-to-head leagues, especially as we get to the playoffs, because you want to be able yeah, to fill that lineup every every that's every. Interesting. Game. I mean, the the team that I've got, my one head-to-head is a team that I entered into OPL, and so it was built for that kind of depth, and so it, it sort of still has that. We've shifted to a little bit more pitching, but. There's, you know, you're saying like you get rid of every prospect. We don't have, we don't have a single prospect. I mean, it depends how you define prospect, but we don't have a, we don't have a single minor leaguer on this. Right. Roster. And that's more what I mean. Um, yeah. Yeah. The old, actually, that's even, that's not really true. We have Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson is still in the minors, but I don't expect him to be there for long. And we've been struggling to find pitching. And I think one of the challenges in, in a head to head league is if you have those like nine starts, like we have a nine start per week cap and you end up in this weird situation where you really can't carry, at least in my mind, I can't carry less than 10 starting pitchers because you don't know who's going to get scratched. You don't know who's going to, you know, have just a terrible matchup you don't want to use. And even though 10 starting pitchers in theory, right? If every pitcher is going every fifth or even sixth day out of 10 pitchers, a couple of them should get an extra start each, you know, two starts a week. And so you should end up with like 12 starts to pick from, but you can't rely on that. And boy, you know, rain outs, guys getting scratched, stuff like that. It just, it can get ugly. And we have just had like, this is a league I I co-manage with Niv and we've made trades recently to get, we traded to get Mike Clevenger. We, I'm trying to remember if there was another pitcher we traded for. I thought there was, but looking at our rotation, I can't figure out who it was. But like, we sat on Andrew Haney. We're glad to have him back. We picked up, oh, we made it. I think we traded for Shane Bieber. I think that was the other trade we made, which has worked out beautifully for us. But like, 
we're sitting on Anderson right now in the minors because there's so little pitching available on the wire that we couldn't figure out a way to replace him. We're also like, we've been planning to cut Sean Manaya for a while and just haven't done it because we keep like, we finally, we added uh, Johnny Cueto in an auction this week and we're like, okay, we can finally get rid of Manaya. And then Zach Wheeler went on the IL and we're like, nope, can't get rid of Manaya now. He's sticking <laughs> around another week. So we're just sort of, you know, right now my I, we're just sort of like trying to keep our rotation strong enough for the playoffs, like you said. But it has to be deep enough because, you know, any one of those guys gets hurt and we're we're sort of in trouble. I mean, we have four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We have ten healthy major league pitchers that we feel we can use. Ranging yeah. from, you know, Cueto and Manaya, probably the two least exciting. Bieber is is probably the best. And then you've got guys like George Kirby. We had a ton of trade offers for George Kirby, and we have refused. And I feel so good about refusing those trade offers. So good about it. He looks awesome. Ross Stripling's been great. I think Mike Clevenger will be solid the rest of the way. Andrew Haney just needs to stay healthy. But like, we we're... I don't know. It makes me very nervous looking at this rotation, even knowing that we have 10 healthy guys right now. I expect Anderson will be back within a week or so. They're saying Zach Wheeler, who we have on RIL, should be back, you know, basically the beginning of the playoffs, right, for us, which is, or you know, the first, the back half of the first week of September. But like, it feels so fragile. And, you know, you were talking about the importance of not leaving games on the table, right? Like, Fill out your five outfield spots. Fill out your middle infield spot. Make sure you have somebody in every spot every day. It, not getting your nine starts in is a is a death knell. There's just nothing you can do if you don't yeah, get I, that done. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. I mean, because that's more like, you know, I was talking about maybe you get eight points out of two outfield starts, but missing one pitching start is probably 20 plus at a minimum. So, yes, I agree the, the primary focus should be being able to start a starting pitcher in for as many slots as you need in a week in a head to head league. You know, you brought up George Kirby and I know you like George Kirby. You've been talking about him for a long time. What about trading him and getting two starting pitchers in return to replace him? So then you're yeah. gaining a starting pitcher. We we literally rejected that offer <laughs> okay we, we because offered, because because of how you value kirby or because it wasn't enough value coming back yeah so the, the deal that we we were offered was we ended up making a different deal to get mike clevenger so clevenger at 16 dollars was one of those guys we have a five dollar george kirby so clevenger at 16 dollars was one of them the other was like an 18 dollars zach gallon and the way we ended up viewing it was we thought Kirby versus Gallon was an interesting debate for us the rest of this year. Who did we think was going to have a better rest of the season as of about a month ago between those two? And we basically ended up deciding that the upgrade of Clevenger versus whatever we could find in the wire or maybe making a different trade or anything like that didn't make up for the cost difference of Kirby versus Gallon. This is an interesting conversation and we we're we we're you know I knew at some point in the show we would desperately miss Pete and this is the moment because he's the one who made us that offer. <laughs> so oh, he was the one who was who was offering us those two and he's been coming hard after after Kirby. The deal we ended up making included Cabrian Hayes going to him and that's how we got Clevenger. It was a deal. It was a bigger deal. We talked about it on the show a couple of weeks ago where we, we got Mookie Betts, we got Clevenger. There was a bunch of pieces in that. Yeah, we we basically looked at it and said, yes, we need more pitching depth. But you know, at the time we had Alex Cobb, Julio Urias, Brandon Woodruff, Zach Wheeler, Kirby. I think we had already traded for Bieber. We had Andrew Haney. We had Manai. Like we had options. It wasn't. It wasn't. We needed more pitching. We knew we needed more pitching. But we were also in a position where we felt like if our pitching stays healthy, we have enough. We're not desperate. If, you know, knock on wood, if tomorrow morning we wake up and, you know, that we're recording this on Saturday, the 27th, by the time you listen to it, it will be Monday, 
which is the 29th, which means I'll have just a day to make more trades. If you listen to this on Monday and I wake up on Tuesday and like I have three hurt pitchers, <laughs> George Kirby for pitching depth will be back on the table, right? Because you need that depth. And the reality is that going into the playoffs, having 10 healthy pitchers in a nine game start limit league is more valuable than having better pitchers. And yes. so there will be a point, yeah. right? If, if we're down to seven or eight healthy pitchers, there will be a point at which selling a, you know, trading in our dollar for four quarters, it's for lack of a better way to put it, will be worth it. Because but, even though those four quarters aren't as valuable as a dollar, you need them. You have to be able to fill out those spots. So here's my here's my point, okay? Is that I think you can accomplish both of those goals by trading Kirby. I think you can get an additional pitcher, increase your depth, and get a better pitcher in return, at least one better pitcher in return. I would really be shopping Kirby hard. Now, ideally, I didn't I didn't look too closely at the rest of your roster as far as what else you might have that you could trade, but because you mentioned Kirby, I you know, I kind of fixated on him. If you could get two quality starting pitchers, one of which at least is a is a no doubt better pitcher than Kirby the rest of the way. I mean, I would I would probably do that. You're so close. You're at like that second or third place sort of context right now in this league and head to head. I mean, just like a lot of professional sports playoffs, it's sort of you get in and then it's a crapshoot. But if you give yourself as much pitching depth and quality pitching as possible, I think it could make a difference. Now, it doesn't help that you've got a team that's still in the OPL playoffs in your league. <laughs> Because that's a strong team, but you, you know, you can put yourself in a position to at least compete with them the rest of the way or, or meet them in the finals and then give them a fight. Our team has been very strong the last month or so. We went through like a three week period where I think for three straight weeks, we were the high scoring team in the league. And so we also, I think, feel like right now, to your point about, you know, the playoffs are a bit of a dice roll. We sort of feel like we're. We, we've we've tipped the odds as much in our favor as we can at this point. Now, obviously, that's there's always moves you can make to make yourself better. I think the reality is we are fairly far behind Team Dark Overlord, which is the team that you mentioned that's still in the OPL down in the quarterfinals now. And I think we're fair. I think we feel fairly confident we're stronger than anyone else. And I don't think there's a lot we can do to to change that. And so. Based on that, we're I think we're probably going to stand pat, but we'll see. It, it's an interesting debate, right? And, and I think it's it's one of those things that like in roto leagues or even season long points leagues, as you come up to the deadline, no matter where you are in the standings, you have a good sense of what you could do, right? So like just to use two different examples in the keeper cut listener league, which is a four by four league, I'm in third place. I have 71 points. The team in second has 72 I obviously could catch that team. The team in first has 88. There's nothing I can do. There's no trade I can make that's going to move me up to first place. And so I'm I'm sort of just sitting there. I don't think I'm going to do a whole lot. In League One, I'm sitting on 74 points. Now I was on, as I said, I was on 71 points in in the Keeper Cut Listener League. I'm on 74 points in League One. That has me in first place. But it has me in first place, one point up on second place, five points up on third, and set eight points up on fourth. And I've been as low as I think third within the last like week because there's a lot of movement at, at the top. I mean, going back a week ago, literally a week ago today, I had 73.5 points instead of 74, but I was in second place and I was tied for second place. So like, it, there's a lot of movement there. So in that league, I am aggressively trying to buy, right? Because that that league hangs in the balance, and unfortunately, I don't have a ton to buy with. I've got to decide, like, I've got a, a, a two dollar Gavin Williams who I love, but haven't been able to get great traction on anything for. I've got a one dollar Braxton Garrett who I probably need to find a buyer for. I've got a couple other. I've got Bo Naylor. The, the big issue for me in that league is my big acquisition that I made leading up to the OPL playoffs, because this team was in the OPL playoffs, was 
acquiring Trevor's story to strengthen my middle infield and give myself more <laughs> OPL middle infield depth. And he immediately got hurt and has literally not seen the field for my team yet. Yeah. And that is super frustrating. And now, like for OPL, that made a lot of sense for me. But when he comes back, my offense has already been strong. I don't, I don't actually need a lot of help on offense. And I've been rolling out a middle infield with Jose Altuve, Glaber Torres, Jeff McNeil, Jake Cronenworth, Isaac Paredes. I've got, there's someone else on here, Jerks and Profar. Oh, and I've got Ramon Urias too. So like, I've got all these, all these middle infielders and yeah. Did you raise your hand, Justin? I did. I virtually raised my hand. <laughs> I, I wanted, you know, you did a, a case study earlier. I was wondering if you'd indulge me. I have one of my own, a yeah. blind case study. Okay. Let's do so it. I'm not going to spoil the participants or anything else until the end. For context, this is a Sabre Points League. Okay. It is a prize league. And the trade involves a team that's, there's three teams that are virtually tied at the top of the standings in this league. And so the trade involves one of those teams and then the other team who is rebuilding at the bottom of the table. So here's what the trade was. It was a $53 Jacob deGrom and a $9 Josh Rojas. Okay. In return for $7 Frankie Montas, $4 O'Neill Cruz. Wait, how much was the Montas? No, $7. $4 O'Neill Cruz, $3 George Valera, $3 Tyler McGill, and he's on the 60-day IL, and then a $1 Uri Perez. So those five for Jacob deGrom and Josh Rojas. And I'm just curious <laughs> what your wow. reaction to that trade is. I mean... So I'll start by saying that, and this is, I have nothing against Josh Rojas. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice human being. He is a very talented baseball player. He almost doesn't matter in this trade. He's like, at $9, okay. he's not a super exciting keeper to me. And I don't think he's, he's not, he, he might be a keeper actually, but I don't think he's like a game changing keeper. And I don't think he's a game changing addition. He does play multiple positions. He's nice depth. Like he is a, to me, he's a perfect player to add on as a second player to shift value a little bit towards a contending team, and that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. But DeGrom is obviously the prize here. I don't think I'm like going out on any crazy limbs or saying anything anyone's on. Oh, oh you think DeGrom is the guy who's going to make a difference? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Man, that feels... <sighs> it feels crazy to say that anything is an overpay for DeGrom, but that feels like it might be an overpay for DeGrom. And part of that is, you know, I know Montas went through a little bit of a rough stretch recently, but like he's a very good pitcher and man, over the next, what do we have? We've got five weeks left in the season. Pitchers are going to get somewhere around six to seven more starts. Let's call it seven more starts. And if DeGrom is seven points per inning the rest of the way and Montas is five points per inning. Like they're going to throw, I think relatively similar numbers of innings. Montas won't go super deep because he's got a strong bullpen behind him. DeGrom both has a strong bullpen behind him and a team that desperately wants to keep him healthy for the playoffs. So let's assume they throw a similar number of innings. Let's assume that number of innings over seven starts is somewhere around 45. Then they're, you know, you're talking about 90 points, but that's at the extreme end is a, is 90 bonus points. And, and it could be a lot less because Montas is capable of being much more than a five point per, per inning pitcher. And so to also give up Cruz and Valera and Perez. And honestly, like I, McGill is, I, I, you know, I don't want to completely ignore him, but to me, he's sort of also secondary here, sort of the way I was saying about Rojas. Like he's fine. I get why a rebuilding team would want him. I just don't think he's, I don't think he's that exciting. Yeah. So it it feels like an overpay for DeGrom. However, <laughs> I don't know the market in that league. And I don't know what's available. And like, you know, if DeGrom is the starting pitcher available and there is three teams going after him, then 
like that, you know, it's a case of the winner's curse, right? And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, the winner's curse, especially in an auction or a bidding situation is the idea that whoever wins by definition overpaid, the market wouldn't pay as much as you did. And so that's, that is the winner's curse. And that, that sort of feels like the situation here. However, the right way to interpret the winner's curse is not to say you overpaid, you shouldn't have done that, right? Sometimes you need to pay the price if you want the 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 guy who's going to put you over the top. And if I thought the difference between Montas and DeGrom was going to put me over the top and this really was the deal it would take, I can understand why you would do that. I I think I would rather see if I could trade one of Cruz, Valera, Perez, or McGill, if someone wants to do that, for you know, someone who might be only half of what DeGrom is, but you can pair with Montas and keep Montas and I think be in a better position. So I, I think there's probably another trade this team could have done that would have left them better off. But, well, let me, t- let me redefine this. Would have left them better off in the big picture, but I'm not sure, it, I'm not sure they could have like you're, there's no other Degrom. There's no one else you can get who's capable of doing what Degrom is capable of doing, and so I I understand that piece of it. Now it, I'm because, just not sure I'd be willing to pay that price. Yeah, and I I completely expected that reaction from you. Just to <laughs> to you be set clear, me up. <laughs> no, I I I expected. I just wanted to know how how much in in one direction or the other you would go. But I knew in general it would feel like it was a lot. The other part that makes it a little worse for the DeGrom side is that this is saber points and uh, even DeGrom is just not worth as much in saber as he would be in Fangraph's points because he's going to score like you said I mean I think he's over 10 points an inning right now in Fangraph's points but I think in saber he's at yeah 7.05 in saber and I think it's like nine something in in Fangraph's points so he doesn't even know he's DeGrom Oh, it's it's eight eight and a quarter. I'm sorry, eight and a quarter right now in Fangraphs That's points, but crazy. only seven point oh five in Saber. So you're talking one plus points per inning less that he's giving you in Saber. I was the the team that traded for Degrom, and the you asked the question about what the trade market is like in this league. There have been three trades in this league since June first. No, I'm sorry, four trades have been made in this league since June fourth, June first, and I've been involved in three of them. So hmm. really there is very little trading going on. Yeah, um, not a lot of movement. No. So my perspective, my justification for this trade is I knew it was an overpaid when I made it. I, I knew it was. I knew I probably shouldn't have traded as much as I did, but I also knew that I've been trying to make trades and it's been very hard to get trades consummated. And this is the only league, full disclo- full disclosure, where I have any chance of winning. So I have extra sort of meta factors that lead me to be more aggressive in this league than I might otherwise be because I'd like to finish first or at the very, at the very least a strong second place finish in this league. So that's, that's how I justified it. I think the other part of it is I'm not as sold on Montas. You know, the, the gap that you see between the two, I think is much wider. I O'Neill Cruz, even though I still love the potential we're still talking about a hitter who's really struggled. And I don't know, even as a keeper for next year, how valuable he's going to be. I really like Valera and Perez is even before he left his start early the other day, I think um, even before that, it's a situation where it's hard to really put too much value in a trade for a pitching prospect. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and I, and I also feel better about Josh Rojas than apparently you do. I was a little surprised to hear your reaction to his inclusion in the deal. Yes, he was a secondary piece, but to me, he was what was needed to make this deal work because I did need some middle infield depth and his ability to play four positions is really important for my He's team been, the rest of the way. I pulled him up after I said that, and he has been better this year than I realized. He's He's over five points per game at 5.12. He plays... Everywhere but first base, which is fine because in general, you won't need him to play first base. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I expect him to continue to be that. I think he's more like a 4.6 point per game guy. And so from that perspective, I just don't think he's like 
he's a nice piece. He is a good piece to pick up as a contender. He will help make sure you fill out your games, like, and that is important. But I, I think it's more he does that more than he actually upgrades you anywhere. But if I'm wrong and he keeps putting up over five points per game, then that's that's a different story, right? You also when I when I said you set me up, I was I was sort of kidding, but I was only sort of kidding because I also know that you know that Montas and Valera are two of my personal favorites. So you were you were, you were teeing me up to to <laughs> the. Be, uh, the- the other with the Degrom return there because those are guys I'm I'm just very high on. You know, and 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 the the third order setting you up here is also the fact that as we've had many discussions on the Autobot podcast, you much more than me are the one who tends to be more aggressive about putting your chips in yeah. and winning this year. So it was also interesting to get your take on this because traditionally I'm not the one that really makes these big trades. This is just one of those situations where I felt like you know what. DeGrom is going to be a difference maker for me. I really want to win this league. I'm ahead on innings right now in this league. So are the two opponents that I have. So I am going to scale back innings, but Jacob DeGrom will work no matter how many innings you have left the rest of the way. So, yeah, I do think one of the key things for you with that trade then is if you're ahead on the innings pace, you know, you always want to set yourself up to get that last big day and, and get yourself over the top and blah, 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 blah. Get as many innings as you can, right? For those who don't know, Otternew has a soft innings cap, which means that the day you cross over 1,500 innings pitched, you get all of those innings, but then you can't get any more after that. And there's and so the you know the goal for any team is to get to like 1,499 and then start five guys the next day and try to get as many innings as you can. Yep. In a lot of my leagues, I'm comfortable doing that with like a week or two left in the season as long as I sort of max it out. You just made this trade somewhat recently for DeGrom you need mm-hmm. to make sure you actually get every one of his starts. And so one of the things you'll need to do, I think, is back off enough that you don't blow through that soft cap, you know, a week left in the season when DeGrom still has one more start to go. You'll want to make right. sure you get every single one of those DeGrom starts. Yeah, because he could put up 60 points, like, right, <laughs> no problem. Right. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. So I... You know, like I said, I just want to bring that up because I felt like there was some sort of conflicting, <laughs> conflicting aspects of it as far as it not being something I would normally do. It being something yeah. that I, I I readily admit that I paid too much, but it was a it's one of those situations. So there's two factors I wanted to briefly mention if you're all right with me discussing it. One of them is the idea of leverage, right? It, it's. I, this is a high leverage. There are three teams. We are virtually tied. So any improvement I can make rest of season is going to be massive to separating myself from the other two teams that I'm competing with. The other factor I wanted to talk about briefly is also when I make trades, I want to make trades for scarce players. I don't want to make a trade for a top 50 pitching prospect because guess what? I can find those on the wire all the time, all the time. So will I pick them up? Will I add them in free agency? Will I even spend four or $5 on them? Yeah, maybe. Will I trade for them? Never. No, I, I'm not interested in doing that. In the case of DeGrom, like there is no scarcer pitcher than a healthy DeGrom who's currently pitching. Now, obviously the risk is he gets hurt again and that ruins this trade for me, but I was obviously willing to uh, absorb that risk. But when I'm making trades, even from a rebuilding side, not just on a contending side, I'm looking for scarce players, scarce assets with scarce talents. You know, I, I'm, it's much more of a focus for me lately is not trading for players that I could just go out and get anywhere else freely available. And that's why including a relief pitcher. I also made a trade in this league, by the way, right after I made this DeGrom trade, I traded a $10 Luis Severino for $17 Edwin Diaz. And if I'm going to trade for a relief pitcher, it's going to be Edwin Diaz or someone yeah. that's like a top five reliever and not a middle of the pack, even if they're doing pretty well. Because again, I also feel like I can find those relief pitchers on the wire as well, but you can't find Edwin Diaz. So no. that was another trade that I, and again, I was sort of leveraging some of my starting pitching depth to do that trade because I knew I was going to be scaling back on innings. So I'm getting to Grom and I'm getting Edwin Diaz to increase my points per innings pitch the rest of the way hopefully enough to win the league. Well, with that, I think we've gone over the hour mark and it's it's probably about time for us to call it. It's unfortunate because I was intending to 
find a way to force you to trade me Alex Bregman in <laughs> one of the, I think the only league we both play in now is, is yeah. 1199 travel league. And so yeah. I was, I was intending to just force your hand somehow, but I've run out of time. And so I'll just have to negotiate the old fashioned way. Well, you need to get, you need to get better players. You need to get more interesting players for me to make that trade. Chad, your well, team is too good. Your, your, your team is too good for short-term value and not enough for long-term value. So yeah. you need to work on that. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> I'll figure something out, but Justin, thank you for joining. It was great having you on. This is a really good conversation. I hope, uh, I hope everyone out there listening enjoyed it as a reminder you can subscribe, leave us ratings and reviews anywhere you're listening to podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Chad Young. You can find the show on Twitter at Keep or Cut. That's cut with a K. Justin, remind people where they can find you. On Twitter at Justin Vibber. And uh, my Patreon is patreon.com slash Vibot. That's where you can find me. Yeah. And go if you're if you're playing auto new, you, you need to go check out this surplus calculator if you haven't already it is an indispensable tool it'll make you a better auto new manager within within minutes of your payment processing to the the patreon so go check it out it's worth looking at thanks all for listening and we'll be back with you next week